Well, good morning. As Emily said, my name is Vince. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeeming Grace Church, and it's good to see those of you who are here with us in the auditorium. And though I can't see you online, we're really glad that you're joining us this morning as well. If you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 11 through 15. It's not a long section of Scripture, uh, but it's a very important section of Scripture because it speaks to our motivations. And PJ Supis is going to come up now and read for us. And for those of you who want to make a connection, our youth ministry is called 515. 515 comes from this verse, uh, the last verse that he's going to read here. So PJ, thank you for reading for us this morning. Second Corinthians, can you hear me? <laughs> Second Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 15. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time that we can gather together. Thank you that our hearts have already been stirred through our time of singing, worship, and praise to you. We sing about the great work of your son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. And as we come now and we sit under the authority of your word, we pray that your word would search our hearts and our minds. We want to be continually transformed in the image of your son. We want to behold him today in your word, and we want to be changed as a result of it. And for those who are here this morning or watching online who don't know you, don't have a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ, I pray now that your words would have a life-transforming effect on their hearts today and that they would put their faith and trust in you through Jesus Christ. And so we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I got a question for you. It's a question that I've asked myself a lot over the years. And it's actually sort of a two-part question. And somebody says it really, one question or two questions, and I'm not really a grammar expert, so I don't really know, but I'll tell you what the question is and you can sort it out later. But it's a really good diagnostic tool that I've used over the years for living the Christian life. And it goes like this. Why do I do the things I do and who do I do them for? Let me say it again. Why do I do the things I do and who do I do them for? And like I say, it's sort of a two-parted question. It's got some overlap to it, but it's really good diagnostically because it makes us ask the why question as it pertains to our motivations for, for what it is that we do in life and what we do with our time and, and how we spend our money. And asking the why question is a really big deal because it gets to the heart of things, doesn't it? When we ask a why question, why do I do something? We start to say, hey, what's, what's really driving me? What's motivating me? And sometimes we find out that there might be idolatry going on. It might be something that we want, but we want it too much. And instead of it being a good thing, it becomes something that's not a good thing. I think it's a, the Toyota Motor Company that has this thing about getting to the heart of the matter by asking the why question five times. By the fifth time, you'll finally figure out what really, really is going on. And that's how it is with our hearts. You know, we ask ourselves, you know, 
somebody cuts in on us on the road and we get angry about it. And you say, well, why did I get angry about it? And you say, well, you know, that was, you know, an incompetent driver. And you say, yeah, but why did that make you mad? And you say, well, they were rude. And you go, well, okay, but why did that make you angry? Well, because they were being selfish. Okay, but why did that make you angry? Well, I'm going to be late to work if I keep getting cut in on and I'm not going to be able to get there. Okay, but why does that make you angry? Well, I, I don't want my boss to think poorly of me. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're figuring out why that person cut in on you, asking the why question. Now you're really finding out why you're getting angry. Because other people don't make us angry. We get angry because of the stuff that's inside of us. So this diagnostic question, why do I th do the things I do, is really helpful. And who do I do them for really speaks to the object of my affections, doesn't it? Do I do things for myself? Or I, do I do things in accordance to the great commandment to, to do things for God and to do things for others? So why do I do the things I do and who do I do them for is a really, really helpful tool for the Christian life. Who am I serving? Am I self-serving? Or am I doing things to please God and to honor him? This shows up in all of life, doesn't it? It happens when I'm impatient, unkind, rude. I have to ask myself, why did I just do that? Who am I doing this for? And it can be big things. It can be little things, traffic. It can be things at home. Um, you know, sometimes you know, Bonnie will ask me to do something and, and maybe I just sat down and it was a long day. And she says, oh, would you mind? And all of a sudden my heart just goes south, right? Because like I already have a plan in my mind about what I'm going to do with my time and my life. And, you know, and now all of a sudden she's, she's getting in the way of that. And so how I respond in that moment reveals a lot about what's going on in my heart. Why do I do the things I do? Who am I doing them for? Do I get up and say, sure, honey, I love you so much. What is it that you'd like me to do? Okay, that never happens. Okay, but more likely, there's this nanosecond of momentary mental gymnastics that goes on. Okay, I'm a Christian. I probably should not be rude, okay? Um, I love my wife. She does so much for me. Why don't I get myself off the couch and serve her? You're like, isn't that what goes on? I mean, we have these little mental battles that go on. So what motivates you in that moment? Why do you get off the couch when somebody asks you to do something when it's not convenient to you? How do you avoid being angry at the person who cut in on you? on the road? Do you know what's functioning in your heart? Do you know why you're doing what you're doing and who you're doing it for? This is a really important topic. And that's our topic today. It's a topic of what motivates you. Why do you do the things you do and who do you do them for? And that's what Paul is speaking about today. This was uh, an opportunity for him to explain to the Corinthians his motivation for ministry, but also for everyday living. It's how he lived his life to please him. Right? And so he explains to the Corinthians what it was that was going on in his heart, why he was doing what he was doing, and who he was doing it for. And then we'll see at the end what the result is. When we get our motivation right, it really does change the way that we live. So we have to ask ourselves how does new life in Christ change our motivations? How we live our lives? Do we continue to live the old way, living for ourselves, to please ourselves? Or do we now live for him who died for us? Do we live for something grand and greater than ourselves? 
Or do we just succumb to just living for, hey, well, this is what makes me happy now. Do we have a temporal perspective or do we have an eternal perspective? Friends, these are really important things to think about. And yet in the busyness of life, we don't think about them all the time. We get in a hurry, we just do things and we just react. But here this morning, I want us just to slow down for a second. Take the next 30 minutes and just stop and think, how does God's word shape my heart? How does it shape the way that I think? And how does it lead me to live my life, your life, in a way that is pleasing to the Lord? You know, if I had to have a main point for this message, it would be this. Christ died for us so that we would live for him. Christ died for you and I. He hung on a cross for us. He paid the penalty for our sins so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but we would live for him who died for us. Friends, there is so much power in this truth. It's power to change our lives, to bring us from death to life and to lead us on a pathway that gets us to eternal life without regret. So I just wanna talk about two motivations today. Motivations to change. The first one is we fear the Lord and not people. And so look back in your text, look at verse 11. Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So why does he add in knowing the fear of the Lord? Why doesn't he just say, therefore, we persuade others? He's already been talking about new life in Christ and about, uh, we've heard from Justin talking about how we're containers with a gospel inside of it. Uh, Mark was talking about how we've got these leaky tents, but we've got a great destination that we're going to. And yet Paul now is saying something else. He's talking about why he does what he does. He's talking about knowing the fear of the Lord. And the background is found in verse 10. Paul explains that Christian works will be judged. It says this, it says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Christ died on the cross. He rose on the third day. He ascended into heaven and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. For Christians, this judgment is gonna be a good day. In Christ, having our sins atoned for, the judgment that we're gonna have is a judgment of rewards. God's gonna look upon the things that we did for Christ and in the strength that Christ supplies and say, well done, good and faithful servant. That judgment day is also though a dreadful day for those who are not in Christ because their judgment is of a different kind altogether. That judgment is going to be whether or not they live with God at for all eternity or whether they live separated from God for all eternity. And so Paul is alluding back to this fear of the Lord as a judge. And in general, when we read in the Bible, the fear of the Lord, it's appropriate to, to have in your mind this reverence and awe of God. When you read in Proverbs 1, it talks about the fear of the Lord as the beginning of knowledge. So there's this sense of the fear of the Lord, not a, a cowering fear, but a fear that says, no, this God is awesome. That's certainly true and good uh, in a general sense, but that's not exactly the connotation that's here in this text. No, in verse um, 11, he's actually referring back to verse 10. He's thinking about the judgment. He's thinking about standing before God and giving an account for how he lived his life for the praise of God's glory. And so in the text, we see that Christ is the judge and Paul lives with a healthy fear of the judge. He's gonna to have to give an account for what he has done. 
You see, Paul is not concerned about human standards. Paul's not living his life to please everybody else. Paul is living his life to please the audience of one. He knows that one day there'll be one person he's going to stand before who's going to be his judge. And he says, that is going to be the driving point in my life. It's going to motivate me to do everything that I'm called to do, no matter what the cost, no matter how long it takes, no matter what personal sacrifice it involves. I live for him and not not for the praise or the pleasing of other people. No, I live to please God. And so he's not concerned primarily about human standards. He's not concerned about the other opponents. He thinks they're doing harm and he's trying to refute them. Because as you remember in 2 Corinthians, Paul continues to talk with the Corinthians about this group of people that were trying to lead them astray. These were people that just lived in a worldly way. They weren't really holding true to the gospel. And they were captivated by public speaking and oratory and rhetoric and and, and motivating and influencing people, but it was all fluff. Paul says, look, I might not be a great speaker. I might not be all that impressive, but let me tell you, what I'm bringing to you, it's the real deal. And I don't have to package it all up with a bunch of flowery talk. And he's told them, look, you've seen my way of life. You see how I've been with you. Authentic ministry. That's what's motivating Paul as he speaks to them. And see, Paul is on a mission. Paul knows that the mission that every disciple has been given is to share Christ with other people. This is the Great Commission in Matthew, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, training them, using God's word to help them know the truth about who Jesus is. And so that's what Paul says. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing I'm going to stand before God someday, we persuade others. Persuade others to what? To know Jesus Christ, to know the truth that will set them free, to know that Christ died on a cross for their sins so that through faith in him, they could have new life. No longer living in the futility of their thinking, no longer living for themselves, no longer living with the crown on their head saying, oh, the world is mine. No. The radical transformation that comes through faith in Christ, it says, no, I'm with him, and now I live for him. And so Paul is seeking to persuade others with the gospel. He wants to share the gospel message with others. He wants to see them respond in genuine faith and repentance. And his longing, his desire, not only for the Corinthians, but for all those who would hear the gospel, is that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ and receive the gift of eternal life. Paul wanted more brothers and sisters for the family. And he does this because he knows this is what's pleasing to the Lord. So I have to ask myself, okay, if that's how Paul's life was transformed, I have to ask myself, well, how am I doing it seeking to persuade others? We're talking about evangelism, aren't we? And as I thought about this, as I was preparing for this, I go, you know, Why don't I seek to persuade others? Why don't I share my faith? I'm not, you know, a one-man evangelism squad. I don't share my faith all the time. And yet I interact with people all the time. So I had to ask myself, why am I not more desirous of cultivating relationships with people where I can share the gospel, where I can be bold and help people receive this good news, this treasure that we have been given? I turn the question around and I ask myself, why don't I do the things I should do? You know what the answer is for me? And it might be different for you, but 
more often than not, the reason why I don't share my faith with other people is the fear of man. You see, instead of fearing the Lord and the one that I'm going to have to give an account to, I fear other people. I fear what they are going to think about me, what they're going to say about me, how they're going to treat me. The greatest obstacle to sharing my faith is the fear of man. And there should be some fear in it because, look, let's be real about this. The gospel message is offensive to people. No matter how nicely you bring it, the reality is when you start to tell people that they're a sinner and that they're under God's wrath and that it's not going to go well with them for all eternity, that's not like really happy news. Like, oh, thank you so much. You know, I'm really happy you shared that with me. No, like, that's like, get off my planet. Like, you're ruining my life. I'm... My truth is good for me. I'm good. Leave me alone. Stop talking to me about Jesus. And yet we know it's the truth that they need to hear. It's offensive to people. We have to address their sin. We have to address pride, just like the gospel addresses sin and pride in our lives. But it's, it's not an easy message to deliver sometimes, is it? The message we preach is foolishness to the world. And sharing our faith is risky relationally. It's risky for our reputations. Honestly, in these moments, so often I care too much about what other people think of me. I try to be a people pleaser. And so I step back from sharing the faith with them. You see, I don't want them to think, oh, he's just narrow-minded. Oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I can't believe he believes those myths. You see, I like people to think that I'm pretty smart. And I like people to think that I've got my act together and that I'm a reasonable person. And yet when you get the gospel into a conversation with a non-believer, all those things can go out the window. And you better know why you're doing what you're doing in that moment or you're going to bail just like I do. But when we remember what our motivation is, when we remember that Christ died so that we might now no longer live for ourselves but for him who died for us, and we realize that in the Great Commission, Jesus says, hey, go and make disciples of all nations. You know what he says also? And I'll be with you always. That's the catch. He doesn't send us out to go do something in our own strength. He just says, look, I want you to go do this, and I'm going to go do it with you. And that's our hope. And that's our strength. And in one sense, that's our fear of the Lord. We're going, hey, I am going to share the faith. I'm going to be more concerned about what the Lord thinks about me and being faithful to him then I'm worried about the possible consequences to my reputation. Our mission is to persuade others of the good news of Jesus Christ. But it's a costly mission, and we have to know what our motivation is. Or as I said before, we just won't do it. We'll shy away from it. And yet, if we truly have the motivation that comes from God, we have a boldness. We have a strength. We have a conviction. We have a mindset that says, you know what? The most important thing I can do for these people that I love is actually give them the good news that they desperately need. You see, it's loving to share the gospel. It's kind. You know, so many times, like if you saw somebody in physical need, if you saw them and just walked away, you'd say, well, that was callous. That was heartless. And yet think about your day-to-day -day living. Think about all the different people that you intersect with in your life and that you interact with, right? At the store, at school, dropping kids off for sports, you know, doing whatever. And you're interacting with all these people and yet the mass of humanity is under the judgment of God. The mass of humanity 
is leading lives of quiet desperation without hope in this world and without hope of eternal life. And we walk around these jars of clay with this great treasure. And the Lord says, I want you to share it with other people. I want you to be the aroma of Christ everywhere you go. And to do that, we need to know that the Lord is with us. And we do this to please him and not to please man. It's for the benefit of man. But that's not ultimately our motivation. Our motivation is to be able to stand before the Lord. And won't this be a sweet word on that judgment day when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Friends, that's what we live for. This is the nature of the faith that we have been given. It's a glorious privilege to be able to share the gospel with other people. In verse 11, it goes on, it says, but what we are is known to God. You see, he lived an authentic life. He wasn't sitting there worrying about what all of his opponents said or people who were being swayed to go in the other direction. No, he lived his life knowing that God knows him. And friends, you and I should live that same way. If we fear the Lord and not people, we will seek to persuade others. Ask yourself, like I'm asking myself, why don't I do the things I do? Who am I doing this for? And if you get to the heart of that question, and if you're honest with yourself, well, that's a wonderful opportunity to confess our sins to the Lord, to repent and to ask God to help us and to get other people to help us too, to be faithful to what God has called us to do so that you and I can live our lives persuading others in a way that is pleasing to God. You know, Paul was really asking them, hey guys, you really wanna know why we seek to persuade others despite all the hardship and all the problems that we have? I mean, people are not happy with us. It's because we fear the Lord and not man. But here's where this passage gets even better. That was the first motivation. The second one gets more personal. It goes deeper into the heart. The second motivation for change is this. We are controlled by the love of Christ, not the love of self. This is the great change that happens in our lives when we become Christians. We get new hearts, don't we? There's another love that's ruling our hearts. Our hearts of stone loved ourselves. Our hearts of flesh love God. And so in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, when the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates our dead, stony, hard hearts, we are given new life and a new motivation. We no longer are controlled by these selfish desires that live within us, but we're controlled by a love that came from outside of us, that brought us new life. And that's what Paul is talking about. Look at verse 14. It says, for the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. See the connection? No longer live for themselves, no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. It's the gospel. And it's the outworking of the gospel right there. Two quick verses, and we see this is, the, this is the great motivation of our lives. The fear of the Lord is a great thing. Standing before the Lord, uh, living to please him, great motivation. This is actually even greater because it speaks to the personal relationship that we have with God through Christ. The love of Christ controls us could mean two different things. My love for Christ controls me, 
or his love for me? Now, we like to answer that, well, my love for Christ, and so I'm going to do all this stuff for God, and, you know, look what all, all I'm going to do. Because we, we have this problem. We, we always curve in on ourselves. We always want to start with me. I'm the epicenter, right? And so, yeah, for the love of Christ controls me, I'm a Christian, and so, yeah, I'm going to go do all these nice things, and God's going to be really happy with me. That's not how we're supposed to read this. We are supposed to be humbled by this. We are supposed to be, in one sense, in a good way, devastated by this. For the love of Christ controls me. Well, what's the love of Christ? That Jesus Christ hung on a cross and died for my sins. It was my sins that put him up there. His love for me is what gave me new life. It's what gives you new life. This is now what controls us. You see, the love of self didn't really get me very far. The love of self got me death and destruction. The love of self brought me heartache and despair and regret. But his love for me, totally new ballgame. His love for me gave me new life. And not just the hope of eternal life, but new life every single day. Because his spirit has been poured out lavishly into our hearts to remind us that we have a guarantee of our future destination and a guarantee that we are the adopted children of God. Because God so loved the world that he sent his son to come and die on a cross. For those who believe we have new life, this is the great motivation for why we do what we do and who we do it for. This is the answer right here. We are controlled by the love of Christ, not the love of self. Oh, friends, his love controls us. His love compels us. His love, which is never-ending, is a never-ending source of motivation. You see, there's never a day you're going to wake up and say, well, you know, God doesn't love me today. He'll love me tomorrow. No, he loves you today, all day, every moment of every day. With every breath you take, he's demonstrating his love for you. Friends, this is now what controls us. When we get this grand view, when we get this big view of who Christ is and the love that he has shown for us in paying the penalty for our sins and in, in living a perfect life in obedience to the Father, we realize that this is an otherworldly kind of love. This love took care of the problem that we could never take care of for ourselves. This love gives us an abiding hope and a confidence to live no longer for ourselves, but for him. And this love controls us. Paul's message, his ministry, his manner of life, later on when it talks in 2 Corinthians about just all the hardship he endured, it was all worth it for him. Why? Not because it was fun to go through all those hard things, but the love of Christ controls him. It gives him direction. It puts limits on his actions. It constrains him. It calls him to sacrificial living, and it calls him to persevere when things get difficult. And friends, that same love of Christ is what should control our hearts too. This is the great motivation you know, have you ever heard somebody say, you know what, I'd do anything for that person after they've been really blessed by somebody who did something just over the top for them? 
you know, it's usually after someone's done something sacrificial or unusually helpful where they really went out of their way for somebody. You go, man, I'd do anything for that person. And the greater the sacrifice, the deeper the commitment to that person, right? So I had a, a time when I was in college, I had a friend of mine, I went to James Madison University and a friend of mine came over from UVA and he was gonna spend the weekend and we were just gonna you know, hang out in Harrisonburg. But unfortunately that night, I got the great idea after a night of partying to, to go on my own road trip by myself. And so I started hitchhiking down 81 and I ended up in Stanton, Virginia and all by myself. And that's as far as I could get a ride. And um, I was going to try to go see some other friends that were another three or four hours away. And so it's the middle of the night, I'm all by myself. I'm not in the right state of mind. And I had abandoned my friend uh, back in Harrisonburg who had come to spend the weekend with me. And I'm down in Stanton, he's up in Harrisonburg. And, and I called some of my roommates and they were like, hey, you got yourself there, get yourself back, right? Okay, that wasn't very encouraging. But I called my friend Jerry, the one that I had just abandoned, the one that I had left behind, the one that I said, you know what, I'm going to go have more fun with some other people. Forget, forget that. And I called Jerry. And you know what Jerry did? Jerry had already driven back to UVA. Jerry drove all the way back to Stanton, then drove me all the way back up to Harrisonburg, made sure I got home and was safe. Jerry's one of those friends that in my heart, I'd say, man, I would do anything for Jerry. Jerry loved me when I was unlovable. Jerry cared for me when I was rude to him. I had just kind of put him off and I just lived for me. I'd do anything for Jerry. My love for Jerry really affects the way that I think about him. I think about him all the time. We're still very good friends. And I love Jerry. But now think about Jesus. As much as I love Jerry, Jerry didn't take away my sins. Jerry didn't secure my eternal destination with God. Jerry didn't give me the promise of heaven. But somebody else did. Look at verse 14 again. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul's really at the heart of the gospel now, isn't he? You know, there might be some people in your life that you'd do anything for, and it's somewhat relative to what they've done for you. What does God call us to do for him? He calls us to live for him. Not to earn his favor. It's just a, a natural outpouring and outworking of love. Christ loves us. So guess what the greatest command is? To love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. You see, it already has the whole as yourself built into it. It knows and presupposes we already know how to love ourselves. But the greatest commandment says, no, the reorientation of the Christian life is now we love God and we love our neighbor as ourself. What Jesus did for you and I is the greatest expression of love we could ever know. And therefore, it requires the greatest response that we could ever give. We no longer live for ourselves. 
we live for him who died and was raised. Friends, isn't this great news? If you're wondering like, hey, I'm in a tough situation. I'm not sure why I should do what I do or, you know, all that kind of stuff. Man, you just think about this for a moment. Think about how the love of Christ controls you. When you stop for a moment and think about what you once were and what you now are, hopefully your heart is filled with joy and with gratitude. I've read a quote. It says, the gospel is not just the mechanism for getting people saved. It's the announcement of a love that has changed the world. Most importantly for you and I, has it changed our hearts? Is it the new motivation that drives us to do the things that we do? Do we know the object of our affection? Do we know who it is that we do things for? Oh, friends, ponder this. Think about this. This will be such an encouragement because when we fall short, which inevitably we will do, we know where to turn for help. We come to the Lord and receive grace and mercy in our time of need because this is what he's up to. He's, he's making us more and more like Christ and he wants us to live for him. So back to the diagnostic question. Why do I do the things I do and who do I do them for? This can be a wonderful tool for the Christian life. Paul Tripp says the DNA of sin is selfishness. Just think about that. The DNA of sin is selfishness. Chrysostom, an, an old, old theologian said, pride is the mother of hell. Selfishness, pride, all these things, but they all get dealt with by Christ through his love and through his sacrifice for you and for me. If the love of Christ controls us and not the love of self, we will live for him. And I'll just close with just telling you just a brief story of how this worked in my life. When I got saved, uh, it was a pretty radical transformation when I was 25 years old. And uh, I just couldn't believe that, that my sins had been forgiven. But somewhere along the line, as this transformation was taking place in my heart, I realized that I had been dead and now was being made alive. We were singing that song just a minute ago that said, you know, and I ran out of that grave. I'm telling you, I ran out of my grave. Being dead is no fun. Being dead in your trespasses and sin is not great. It's horrible. It's not to be desired. I thought I had everything the world told me I should have, and yet I was a sinner in desperate need of grace. And when that grace shone into my heart by the appearing of Jesus Christ, I ran out of that grave. And it motivated me, and it motivates me to this day. And I want that same motivation to be your motivation, that what Christ has done for you in dying and in rising now becomes the chief motivation for your life so that together we would all run out of that grave. Let's run to the purposes of God. Let's live our lives to please him. Let's persuade others. Let's no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. Friends, let us not walk in that direction. Let's run in that direction. Amen? Amen. Well, let me pray. Well, Father, I just thank you for this time that we've been together. And I pray that your word would have an endearing and everlasting effect in our hearts that we would be reminded once again because of the work of Christ 
that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him who died and was raised for us. We want all glory to go to you and not to ourselves. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.